Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Jim, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. It's, uh, we finally we finally connect. Jim Stevenson. This is Mitch Hampton from Journey of an Esthete podcast. Nice to see you. And or hear you. Yeah, you are on our podcast now, and um, there's so much to say about you. I'm very excited um, for this episode for a number of reasons. You are, in my humble opinion, one of our leading composers. Um, of all styles of music, of course, but mainly the classical world, right? And you have a, you've done many things. You have a background in trumpet and brass and conducting. And uh, I guess a general audience might know you best for your fanfare for democracy for Joe Biden's inaugural. But um, you've done, of course, you've done much more than that. You've written symphonies. You've written for you write, working on an opera now. I just had the opportunity to listen to your piano concerto, which is. Um, which is fantastic. I love it. And oh, thank you've, written, you. you've written flute sonatas and bassoon sonatas. And you and I share a couple of things in common, if, I, if, I, if I'm correct, is that we are both interlocking Arts Academy folks, right? Correct, of course. Yeah. And so I'm 1985 and you're 86, I think. Yeah. So I can say I'm younger than you. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So, cool. And then on top of that, New England Conservatory of Music. Right, so yes. so we we went to the same schools. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. When were you at NEC? I graduated in 1990. Okay, so I did. I went straight from Interlochen there and was done in four years. Yeah, so I went straight from Interlochen to New Conservatory of Music, NEC, undergrad and and um, then grad, and so we have a very similar similar. Uh, 
kind of tra- trajectory. Um, I'm more in the jazz world. You're more in the classical world. So generally on our podcast, I, I, I like to uh, um, usually do a linear progression where we start with how somebody became the musician or artist they are, in your case, music, and how that, how that came together for you, how that, how that uh, developed. But I'm going to do something a little different since, um, since you were so honored as to be chosen with the, uh, the President's Marine Band, I believe it's called, to have this uh, fanfare democracy. Do you mind starting off with something closer to the president and, and, and talking about that, that project or that a little bit? I, I'd be happy to. However, however you want to do this is fine with me. So um, it was, let me think, the fall of 2020 uh, when, when the last election occurred. Yeah. And you, you may recall that there was a lot of angst surrounding that election. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. There wasn't. Uh, it wasn't officially. It wasn't officially decided for I think three or four days. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember on I think it was November seventh. It was a few days later, maybe even a Friday or Saturday. And it. I live in the Chicago area. Right. And it. It happened to be uh, an absolutely beautiful day on that November seventh, like mm-hmm. seventy degrees, which is unheard of. And everybody was out, yeah. and uh, we were all we met some friends. We got we went to a cafe, sat outside, and there just seemed to be a general buzz in the air. Not necessarily politically speaking, but just because like that little chaotic event was over, right? right it was right. A, a decision had been made, and uh, so literally, as I was sitting there, um, I started hearing a fanfare in my head, and. Um, Went home that afternoon yeah. and wrote, wrote it and, I don't know, finished it that evening. And I didn't really think anything of it, but I told some friends about it. Yeah. And somebody said, you know, Jim, you've worked with the Marine Band before. Yep. Maybe maybe you should let the conductor know, that's Colonel Jason Fettig, uh, that you have the fanfare. And so... Ladies and gentlemen, the President's own United States Marine Band will now present the world premieres of three new fanfares written by American composers in honor of the 59th inaugural ceremonies. Fanfare for Democracy by James Stevenson, Fanfare Politia by Kimberly Archer, and Fanfare for Tomorrow by Peter Boyer. Uh, you ever interested in it, and he's like, send it to me. Mm-hmm. And I know 
I know Jason very well. Usually he has his programs laid out well in advance, and he surprised me by saying, you know, we actually haven't decided our inaugural program yet, and this yeah. semester would be perfect perfect for that. So, that's incredible. Uh, so that's how that happened. I, it was literally – usually pieces are um, – Projects, you know, they're commissioned from me, and I have deadlines. But this is one of the few I was just inspired by a piece of music, and it ended up uh, at the Capitol Steps. That's an amazing story. I mean, just that one story exemplifies so many things on our podcast about how artists work and how they process raw material, Mm -hmm. as I call it, and then it becomes cooked, and then it and then it uh, becomes a completed project. But that's really so. You heard, I guess, you were inspired by a lot of the emotions. Many of us. if not all of us were, were experiencing and going through in, in, in those years, in that period. And you yeah, translated sure. into sort of, you, you heard this brass, I should say, at the, at the outset of this program, we're going to be listening to a little bit of that fanfare. Um, it's a terrific piece, and it exemplifies, I think, uh, your musical language, which is what I like, and that you were continuing uh, the total tradition uh, to a large extent, uh, with, with some great deal of chromaticism, of course, for example, in the bassoon um, sonata and the piano concerto, but still uh, carrying on in, in that in that harmonic language. So, when you on that day when you went back back home, you just sort of started writing, right? And then it sort of became. I, I take it you worked at the at a keyboard or at a computer, right? Or, or yeah, I do a I do a hodgepodge of both. I um, I get my ideas at a piano and right you use the uh, incredibly efficient tool of the computer these days and it allows me to get ideas in print quote unquote quicker and right, so right. yeah that's my method so you find that very helpful and that's interesting so i mean i'm i'm starting in the present to me that's the present 2022 not really but it is but in terms of a uh, uh looking things in terms of period periodization you know it's sort of our present but I want to go back a little bit. You wrote this fantastic piece, and if you if you hear it, it's very much a fanfare, and it's informed, I think, by your. Would it be fair to say that you have extensive knowledge of of brass? I mean, you know, of course, the full orchestra, but you have a, a special affection for brass in, in um, wind instruments, or. Well, you know, I, I think if I forgive Oxford um, colleges, or uh, and I do that quite a bit, I usually tell people to go with to start with what you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you don't need to try to reinvent the world right off the bat. Just start with what you know. And I this probably might launch us back into my history, but I started as a trumpet player. And so I sat in the back of an orchestra for almost 28 years from the age of 10 until 38. Wow. And so I was amidst, you know, trombones and horns and trumpets and, yep. you know, a lot of the time. So, yeah, it's a... Uh, fair to say that that's a comfort zone for me. Yeah. Um, and once I got kind of going on that path, I was very curious to write, write for other instruments and other genres and all that sort of thing. So that's why, uh, yeah, brass fanfare came quite easily to me. Yeah, and it also shows your deep knowledge of the history of those those kind of musical forms and pieces, you know. Of course, the Copeland is very famous and many others, and I, I hear, hear that in that Pete, that work. And it's very, uh, well, it's very exciting. <laughs> I'm glad you because that was on purpose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just find it interesting that you mentioned brass and then you mentioned other instruments. I mean, listening to your piano concerto, especially the second movement in your piano concerto, you're doing things with the strings uh, impressionistically and also the harmony and the way you voice the strangers is very, very interesting. 
so it, it, it shows that you have a have a breadth in terms of instrumentation and, and, and thinking about, you know, what a string section requires in that concerto and to say nothing of the piano part, you know, of course, and, and piano solos. But I mean, um, going back, I mean, of course, I think I, I knew it in luck and you were you were a trumpet person, trumpet guy. And and now you're you're a major celebrated composer who's writing music that who's a language I really happen to really like a lot. And um but there's something in between. Uh, what what was uh, what would you say? Well, what was the period where you where you started to really become a composer or really sort of enter composition more fully? What yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I um, and thank you for your nice words about my music. By the way, I appreciate that a lot. Um, I'll say this before we're done with this podcast, but I'll mention it now. I was a huge fan of your jazz piano playing when I heard you at Interlock, and I thought you were absolutely wow. fantastic. Oh, well, and uh, you, you had a style and a sound well beyond your years uh, back in our high school days. So, wow. um, thought to, to hear you talk that you appreciate my music means a lot to me. So I appreciate that, Mitch. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I've forgotten some of that, but I'm, it's great to hear that now. It's an, it seems so long ago. We're middle aged guys, so it's kind of it's <laughs> kind of like we're going back back in the back in the mutual admiration here is 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 is, is enjoyable. Well. But anyhow, go ahead because you because it's it's a big change, right? To go from being a player, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, if we had been talking at Interlock, and I, I would have told, sorry, back when we were teenagers, I would have told you that I was going to do nothing the rest of my life except for play trumpet. I mean, I loved playing trumpet. I wanted to sit in, or- in an orchestra forever. Yeah, and I I got lucky at age twenty one. I got a job playing in Florida in an orchestra, and um, what happened? What happened was I, our brass quintet needed some music arranged for some concerts we were doing. There was some music that we wanted to play that wasn't available. And so I just raised my hand and told the group, I don't even know why I did this, to be honest with you, Mitch, but I, I said, uh, I'll do it. I'd be happy to write this stuff out for brass. And So I guess so, your, fir- your first effort at, at, in this kind of world was, a, was an arranging job, right, you might say? Oh, yeah, because I, I did a bunch of the brass quintet stuff, and then we had a conductor mm-hmm. who... Who, a pop conductor who heard that I was quote unquote an arranger, which was yeah. not true, but but I but I guess I had done a couple. And you um, learn by doing, you know, you started, you get better at it, and you you were doing it. Yeah, for, and for those that I, don't know, to be to fair, in fairness to audiences that maybe aren't as musically experienced as as, as us, um, what does a what does a arranger do? What is it to arrange something for a different? If you had to explain that that what that is. And you take a take a piece that's unavailable, or you have to. Yeah, in my in my mind, it means you take a familiar tune, and this happens all the time with let's say rock songs that are on the radio, and an orchestra wants to play them. Uh, that rock artist did not write it for orchestra, so it's somebody's job to take that hook, that main tune, to put it in the strings or put it in the trumpets or whatever, and then add add stuff around it. And and the arranger also, it's a tricky line you have to walk because you need to stay true to the tune so that people will recognize it. But also you're allowed a little bit of creativity and freedom injecting your own, in your own voice. So, you know, that's why Sinatra had all those hits back in the forties and fifties because he had Nelson Riddle writing the charts Mm -hmm. for him, you know, the the great arranger. So that's, uh, that's what an arranger does. Just take something that doesn't exist, uh, exist in one genre and they move it to another and make it work. 
Well, it, it makes a lot of sense to me to hear you talk about it that way because I think there is a it's, it was a bridge to original composition for you then, right? Would you say? That's exactly what happened. Oh, I, I ended up yeah. I did probably a hundred arrangements for our orchestra, and I discovered that I loved um, writing for strings and, mm -hmm. and hearing my colleagues playing all this stuff around me and watching them either get excited or on occasion get bored. And I'm like, hey, I got to fix that. Yeah. And so I just I was able to live within the group I was writing for, and then I was I started thinking, well, why don't I try try starting to write my own original tunes? Um, and I'll be honest with you, Mitch, I didn't know any other living composers. I thought, you know, it was not, uh, I'd never dreamed I would do it for a living. I just was curious to try it. That's all that happened. That's, that's very, when you say you didn't know, of course you came, I'm sure you, in your experience as a musician, you played a repertoire that was modern, I'm sure contemporary. You may have played a Bartok, been in the Bartok of Orchestra in the brass section or no, or, or thing, or more recent, recent composers. Yeah. Oh yeah, for like John, sure. But John, I never John Adams or whoever, never. Yeah, I did. Um, but I was like, as I said earlier, I was just planning on being a trumpet player my entire life. So it never even crossed my mind that anybody might make a living as a composer. I really didn't think that was a thing. Interesting. And so I just started. I just started. And I think this is a blessing in disguise. I just started writing for fun, not expecting it would go anywhere. Right? You know, I just was having fun doing it. So it was out of lo a love for it. And and, the, yeah. and and then the other things yeah. follow from that. What was your what was your first completed piece? Your first original composition? Um, well, I mean, I wrote a silly little trumpet trumpet duet uh, in my early 20, mm. 24. and um, uh, actually, like one person came up to me and said, "Hey, I really like that piece." And you know, yeah. Okay wasn't expecting them to say that. And that kind of led me to just keep writing more and more. My first, my first orchestral piece was, uh, I wrote a piece based on the legend of Sleepy Hollow, Washington Irving's. And we did that in Naples, my hometown orchestra back then. Um, it was a blast. I just loved that process of telling a story with music. So in that, in that sense, you see yourself or you were in that piece, you were in the tradition of I guess what I what I learned back in the day was programmatic music or mu music that's it might be an instrumental, but it's but it, you know like a Romeo yeah. and Juliet or, or like a you know, ba some ballet a lot of ballet music. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, what 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 do you um? So you were comfortable doing that, expressing that, or using music to express something. There wasn't, of course, wasn't just referring to abstract music on the on the paper or in the in the air. You know, kind of has a story to it. And narrative. Um, yeah, I, I think that's what attracted me. Also, I did a lot of study mm -hmm. of book uh, and researching the area of Sleepy Hollow and all these sorts of things mm -hmm. to try to make music as authentic as I could. And that was just really interesting to me. I felt like I was discovering little things that maybe other people didn't know, and then I could inject those into the into the music and and like my private little codes that people could explore if they wanted to try to figure it out. So, I do that with a lot of my, even, even pieces that aren't necessarily telling, uh, necessarily telling a story. I still, you still use that, that technique. Yeah. Well, that was very yeah, to me in, in your games piece, which is, I think it's a relatively newer piece that I had the opportunity to see, right. For, uh, we had like kind of some kind of competition or like a get member of your games for, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Thank you for so checking that out. Well, yeah. that's um, that's would that be an example of a similar kind of similar project where you 
there's a story element or there's a kind of a there's a kind of a, a yeah or or there's just inspiration that I find that helps me form the musical language that I'm going to write in yeah uh, and so that one that you mentioned came from a book that it was all about flow and how there were different types of games to help us achieve mental flow. And mm-hmm. that when I, I read that book, it was just like, Hey, there's music here. And so I based an entire piece on it, which was, a, which was a blast. Was that based on the book flow? The famous. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think that book is written For back sure. in the eighties, wasn't it? I think. I think. Uh, could be. Yeah. I can't pronounce it. Yeah. None of name, us, none but... of us can pronounce his name. It's Mittold. <laughs> Mittold. Uh, let see. That's a, that's a that's a must read when you say to our listeners, get flow. That's an, that's one of the important. That's kind of like one of the important nonfiction books, kind of like Gun Germs and Steel. That kind of everybody ought to read when you say that's kind of yeah that's kind of a, yeah yeah. It was a great book, and I saw it sitting on a colleague's desk, and I was like, "What is that book?" And he said, "Oh, you got to read it." And so I did. And yeah, really affected me. It's really interesting. I mean, I wanted to get into a little bit, if you don't mind. Your commitment to, for lack of a better word, tonality, or, or um, because I remember when I was coming up in music, that coming out of the '60s and '70s, right? Yeah. Uh, the climate was still extremely, you know, non-tonal, atonal, uh, ex- extremely dissonant music was still very, um, was still very much uh, kind of the dominant style, wouldn't you say, in those years? Oh, um, for sure. And I'm, I'm wondering I- what, what your thoughts about. Well, first of all, it all rebelling against that or maybe saying well what about what about tonality or or any of the, any of that that comes to mind because it's a that's a that's a historical question of course but of course it's not just john adams and um you know there's there's a lot of composers that philip glass that rebelled against that orthodoxy i think but um what are your feelings about about your own language because it's it's um and i think you know, thinking the second movement of your flute sonata which is a blues it's beautiful it's like a, it's like a, it's a real blues and i'm like wow well, on the foxtrot and i'm thinking wow you know it's great that you're writing this way but of course i think 40 years ago i don't think composers at all were writing like that or would have it would have been considered a little maybe not cool yeah. to write that way What do you think of about course. those changes, and what what, you, what do you make? I know you do it out of love, and you do what you believe in. But do you have any thoughts on that on that, that question or on that? Sorry, it was well, a long, I, long question, but no, no, it's great, great question. The first answer is I think it's extremely important that we even have these sort of ebbs and flows and experiments, and you know, we go in one direction, we go another. I, I you know, music obviously can't stay the same forever. Not any art form yeah. should stay the same forever. I don't think, and. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, um, you know, and then we all have a choice to make. We can either react to something or we can go with that flow, so to speak, or we mm-hmm. can try to just come up with our entirely unique voice, whatever it is. But for me, I just try to, you know, as I said earlier, I sat in an orchestra for so long. Mm-hmm. And so I had the best 
teachers for 30 years, you know, sitting in those, in the, in that chair, right? Like just listening parts. to great music after great music after great music. Mm-hmm. And after you do that for a while, you sort of develop a sense of what you like, right? You, what you're drawn to. And so I, when I write music, I imagine that I'm in the audience mm-hmm. and I, I try to write music that I would want to hear. And right. obviously, Obviously, there are going to be people in the audience who don't want to hear that, and they're going to say, well, that's not. But um, if I try to write music for other people's ears, I'm going to fail, right? So I just just try to write music. Uh, I still believe in, um, you know, I I think one thing that gets ignored a lot, and of course, this opens up a whole new topic, but... um, I don't mind going. Melodic invention is not easy. It's, um, and I think it, it's very hard. I'm continually striving to find a way to write melodies and I by no means have figured it out, but it's, it's always on the, you know, I see it out on the horizon, the thing I can, I'm trying to find, but I don't know if I'll ever get there, but I think it's a really important part of music. That's my personal opinion. Oh yeah. And, and um, it's, 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 it could be easy to ignore. You could say, ah, I don't believe in melody, but I have to believe in melody, so it informs the music I write. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, melody, melody is, is is still supreme in many respects. I mean, I I, I would I would agree with both those things that, it, that it's supreme. It's important. I also agree that it's it's maybe in the lead, so to speak, pun intended. You know, that the melody leads, and it might be one of the most important things. You also well, yeah. you also mentioned it's I, difficulty. Now, is this a difficulty? Um, do you think this difficulty is more of a case in the field that you're in of, of the classical world rather than if you – so, for example, if you were in a pop – more the pop world and writing a song, then maybe would you say that that was a case where it's natural that the melody would, would be the focus? Um, or is it doesn't quite work out that way or it's not quite – No, I think – well, I think that's the definition, the definition of pop, right? I mean, you yeah. need that hook, that popular yeah. – that melody that's going to grab people. Right. Um, and in – Classical music, I do think it it's uh, if you're trying to write quote unquote intellectual music with depth, um, you know, finding that melody that also has interesting harmonies, that also has an interesting rhythmic component and textures and all these things, it does. If you you can lean too heavy one way and lose sight of the other, you know what I'm saying? You're like, oh, let's write this really cool orchestral sound, and then oh shoot, what about melody? Ah, I'll just throw something on top of it. You know that managing all managing all those things at once. Yeah, you you got to do it all at once, of course. I mean, I I I should also add, your rhythm is very important in your music. There's a lot of rhythmic vitality. Of course, I'm thinking of again the first movement of the piano of your piano concerto um, comes to mind. I don't know why rhythm. Um, yeah, so there's sure. the rhythm, melody, and harmony. But I'm, but I, but I'm just wondering your thoughts. I mean, being in a section or being in a trumpet chair, and I'm sure you played work that was that was dissonant and very very non-tonal. I mean, you may have may have played Stockhausen pieces or Boulez pieces. I don't know. For um, sure. Yeah. What was your feeling? I mean, I guess what I mean having to play that music. I'm sure. 
uh, your experience doing that, did that, did that inform your decision that you didn't necessarily want to write that way or, or. Well, there's, there's pluses and minuses to that. I mean, when you're a performer's chair and something that's maybe, as you said, dissonant or lacking some of these other characteristics, but it ha- I mean, I don't want to use the word lacking cause that, that's the wrong way to put it, but, mm. uh, something that is more technically challenging and not maybe lyrical or maybe not melodic. Um, as a performer, you have a job to figure out what that composer had in mind and perform it to the best of your ability and accomplish something and feel proud of that. Um, and boy, we are blessed with great performers who can do all that. I, you know, I'm 50, 54 now. So what I'm about to tell you isn't something that, came to me when I was 22 and I'm still going, I'm still trying to figure all this out, but Jim, I think we are. Hold that thought. I I think we're all figuring a lot of things out still, even though we're 55 and 54. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, But what I'm coming to realize more and more as I get older is that I want to allow my performers to express themselves. I want to allow them to uh, inject some of themselves into the music. I want to allow them to tell their own story. I want to, and sometimes um, some music doesn't allow people to do that. And so I've mm-hmm. chosen to, every single note I write, I'm trying to wow. allow the performer to feel like what they're doing is important, necessary, and they can inject their personality into it. That's first and foremost. And do I always succeed? No, of course not. But it's always in my mind. So that's that's your primary goal. It's interesting to hear you talk about that. It sounds like listening to Duke Ellington talking about writing for his his people, you know, Johnny Hodges or Ray Nance, you know, kind of, kind of, it's a similar thing that the performer, maybe a specific performer even, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, and you write, and you want that musician to be able to really, really express themselves. What What were the opposite of that? Be? You said some composers are much more. I don't know if the word is structuralist and very uh, less interested in that, or it's more. It's more maybe rigid. What would an example of that be? Because I don't know. It's an interesting. Um, well, it would just be music that um, maybe ignores or doesn't take advantage of what the various instruments are best at producing. Yeah. You know, if, if I've got 30 violins on stage that I'm writing for, and, I mean, forgive me, I'm coming from one angle, and you could talk to another composer, and they'll tell you the exact opposite. But I just, you know, I, I've listened to, and I've watched what violinists and string players and flute players and whoever, what they respond to. And, and when you're sitting in an orchestra, you see them get on the edge of their seat and you see them begin to move and you see them get a smile on their face or you see them rock and roll into whatever they're playing. And if I'm writing music that doesn't allow them to do that, uh, personally, then I feel like I've missed an opportunity. And that's that you've missed so, the goal that we just discussed, that your goal, you want, your, your, and that's that your music is very, uh, is very, um, I guess like some films and film directors are actor driven and, and, and kind of ch- uh, cherish the actor in a way you, your music is the, the performer and the performer's ca- capacities and skills. And, and, and yeah. Abilities. I mean, that, that, 
That's what I did for so long. You know what it's like to sit in that chair. Now I might give you a different answer in ten years. This is all a journey, but um, that's just how it feels, right? <laughs> well, it's funny. Do you want to mind going? We winded a little bit back to back to Interlochen. What are your impressions? We both went to this school. What are your impressions of the Interlochen experience um, after so many years? About what it what it um, I don't know. Just what the legacy in in, in your life was of that. Um. Sure. I mean, uh, we all come from different places. Uh, for me, it was a life changer. And it was a life changer I didn't even realize it was happening while I was there. Okay. Uh, I started I started going to Interlock when I was 10 years old. I went to summer camp there. Oh, that's a big difference. Wow. And I, I went there for seven summers. And I went there for three schools years, uh, you know, at the same time as you. And, you know, when I showed up at Interlock and when I was age 10 with a little trumpet in my hands, wow. and all of a sudden, I'm sitting in an orchestra, and that was literally the first time I'd ever seen a violin. So I was like, what is, what is that? What's going on here? <laughs> and we started playing some music, and I was like, this rocks. I, I literally had that thought, maybe not those words, but I just, yeah. I was having a blast. And then being amidst all those people that had the same energy and the same excitement that I did, you just kind of get you know, your conversations change. You know, you're walking around the main campus talking about music instead of sure. what, what I might have talked about if I had stayed home. So for me, it was um, just a complete absorbing, geeking out on music that I didn't realize was so special at the time. It just seemed normal because we were all doing it. And then, yeah. you know, after you leave and you get your distance from it, you're like, wow, that that was really special. So for me, it was just a big life changer for me. And you know, I went to college and I had already played all the music that we were playing in college. That was already in my repertoire. Interesting. And then I get it. Then I get a job and I've already played all the music. I'm playing. You know, so it just gave me that that leg up, uh, at least um, mentally, on on the job at hand. So that was really great. Because, because you because of whatever the season's repertoire was, you'd already had already covered it earlier. And most, you, of, you, most of most of most of it. Yep. And that's, uh, sure. I mean, I'm sure that helps your composition and composing. It's got to, I mean, I, I just, now that it, now that I think about it, I mean, it's um, probably, I, I, I don't know why I'm thinking of that second movement of the piano concerto, but the, the, the sonic quality um, and all that, I'm sure that goes into it. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just wondering now, I started rather late, believe it or not. I, for me, it was not, I didn't play with other musicians at the age of 10 at all. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I came came to the, all this much much later. When I say much, I mean degrees of four or five years rather than. Um, what's it? I mean, I guess it's it's not unusual. But what's it like starting that young or that or that you're you're in a you can also the camp experience is different than interlock in the school. Yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. it's summer camp, and that's a that's a whole other thing I would imagine. Camp was pretty uh, hardcore. Yeah. Pretty. Competitive. It was challenging. Uh, use that word on purpose uh, because we had things called challenges where you try to beat the people that you're playing against. Uh, you know, I, I, it was just stuff that happened to fit what I wanted to do, and I never could have predicted it. I mean, my parents kind of sat me there on a lark, saying, "Hey, Jimmy, you play trumpet. Why don't you go to the camp?" And I <laughs> showed up and. Kids, as soon as I walked in the door, kids said, hey, let's go play tennis. And so I was already having fun. Right. And then I show, show up at rehearsal and there's all, you know, as I said earlier, it was just, it was a blast. And How much of this do you think was a ge geographical regional thing? Because Interlochen's in the Middle West. You're from Illinois. 
I remember a lot yeah. of students in Interlochen were from states like Michigan and Illinois and Indiana. How much of that do you think is regional that, that people that people were attuned to Interlochen at that time? Oh, yeah. Um, a lot. And this is not to suggest that people can't find this sort of thing in their regions either. We all find our places. But yeah, I mean, my, we had taken a family trip the summer before. We drove around Lake Michigan uh, from Chicago. And we, my dad said, hey, what is this place? And we stopped in and visited Interlochen. And the next summer I started going there. Um, so it was very much a regional thing. It was within driving distance. So that was a big part of it. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's that's a part of it is, is I guess is regional um, and geography. I'm wondering, you working right now on an opera, correct? I am indeed. Do you want to talk about that at all? Or? <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, operas usually take years to produce. Um, this is like uh, um, how do how do I put this uh, overnight? kind of story that usually wouldn't happen. Um, right. this, we're we're going to do it June 11th. Wow. And, and I started writing it on April 1st. So this is as much of a quick turnaround in, in opera as you'll ever see. Um, now, that being said, it's not a directed opera with staging and costumes and sets and all that sort of thing. It's a concert opera with three singers and a 20-piece orchestra. Mm-hmm. It, it's one hour long, so it's not a whole evening. It's just uh, one act. And um, like as I told you about The Legend of Sleepy Hollow earlier, uh, I get the opportunity to tell a story, and I've just had an absolute blast. I mean, I'm not I'm not even saying that I've figured opera out. That's an entirely huge world that I'm just dipping my toe into right now, but uh, mm. uh, I love the process so far, so I just can't wait to see what happens. What is, what is the text or book or play? What is the... Um, yeah, uh, a colleague of mine here in the Chicago area, his name is Matt Barese. He's a librettist uh, with many successes out there, and um, he approached me with a story or gave me the story of uh, apparently a true story of a woman in England in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So let's go back a couple hundred years, yeah. and she is down on her luck, and so she completely reinvents herself as a as a foreign princess from a faraway land that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. And she makes the whole thing up. She makes up a language. She puts on costumes. She goes into character from the moment she wakes up to the moment she goes to sleep. And the the part that might be relevant today is that all these people start latching onto her. I mean, she shows up at a, the doorstep of a, a wealthy English woman and the English woman, instead of, trying to figure her out says, oh, maybe she can help my status because I've discovered a princess from well, a that, foreign land. And that so, part of the, well, that part it, of the libretto is, is certainly a contemporary topical theme. If you think about, you know, the Elizabeth Holmes case and all the, you know, all the, uh, the different, the different cases, right. Of, yeah. of people. And yeah, for a little, yeah. Latching on the celebrity or and trying to promote yourself with something that maybe isn't true, you know, that kind of thing. It's um, it's uh, it's contemporary for sure in that respect, but um, I've had a blast writing it. I can't can't wait to do it. I should say, uh, Jack Jackie wanted to ask wanted to ask me to ask you a question about your being very prolific. You are prolific. She says you you must be a fast writer, a quick writer. And I and I said, <laughs> well, you know, you know, you pro- yeah, probably. Um, 
I suspect that Je- talking about you in the second person, the third person, is, I think Jim knows how to use his use of time very well. And it's maybe more about what you do with the hour than the amount of hours. But I don't know. I don't want to speak for you. So what um, what do you make of your of your uh, prodigious? Yeah, I, I, I guess <laughs> people have told me to write quickly. I don't know if he has um, work habits. I don't know other composers too well as far we don't talk about it that much, but yeah, I, I mean, composing is my job, right? So I get up in the morning. Um, I've been very lucky. I've always had projects that are on my plate. And so yeah. I'm usually, I'm usually at my desk by seven or eight in the morning and, um, you know, by four o'clock I'm done and try to handle other business things or family things or live a normal life. But, uh, I, I'm very I'm a curious composer. I don't ever try to have, um, I try to go to the, I keep using this word, but I try to go to the story of every piece I'm writing. And that could be somebody's personality. It could be the orchestra for whom I'm writing. It could be an actual story. And what that allows me to do is just to get into that flow. I'll use that word on purpose of taking Jim Stevenson out of it and just letting my mind waters where that story is. And once I'm able to do that, uh, the music happens relatively quickly. And so, so I guess what you're saying is that your very process putting leading with story leads to the music, music, um, the process of composition, composing the music go, go quicker than it would otherwise. If it's, yeah, that's, that's your, you're doing what you do. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, the only way I to do it, so I, I don't know whether I have to be faster or slower any other way. It's just my method. And, um, you know, I had an interesting project just three days ago, actually. I, there was a group in Washington, D.C. called Sound Impact, and um, they like to uh, engage with juvenile detention centers and, and maybe other areas where music isn't so pop, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not popular, but isn't maybe a part of their life as much. And so so they bring their performances to these places and just try to engage with these, um, usually young people. Mm -hmm. And they had a project, they had a project where they had maybe 15 or so teenagers in a detention center, all write a melody. Mm -hmm. And none of them, they didn't know anything about music. They they just wrote notes on sap lines. They didn't put any clefts down or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So they gave they gave me these melodies on Wednesday. I wrote a piece on Thursday morning, and then they played it on Friday. <laughs> so <laughs> like, again, it was like I was able just to go to the story of these melodies that other people provided. You know, the, some of the onus had been taken off of me. Some of the pressure had been taken off, and I could just make something up based on what somebody else did. And I found that really interesting. I, I, I enjoy things that take me out of myself. So to speak. Well, that's, that's also brand new. That's, that's much like this opera. Is there, so is there, um, before we, uh, remind, uh, listeners about, uh, about the, what is the, uh, debut is in June, June 7th, you said, or June, uh, June 11th, June 11th. Um, is there anything else you want to share with uh, listeners here? Um, anything that's important to you to say about music or about what you've done or anything that comes to mind that you think, you know, I want this to be mentioned or I want this to be um, expressed uh, kind of in your own words? Um, I guess maybe I, I, maybe I should have prepared for a question like that, but I would just say that, um, 
you know, all of those composers, um, I think, are trying to find a way to reach our audiences, to speak to our audiences. And, and um, we recognize that audiences are working all during the week and then they have a night off and they want to come to a concert and, and hearing a, a brand new piece of music, if, if it's possible to just kind of allow yourself to, to see what might be in that composer's mind and kind of live in that moment because, you know, uh, new music is always being created and we never know where it's going to go. And it's, it's, we are so lucky to be able to have audiences here. music. I mean, we write it, but then, it doesn't happen. Uh, I'm getting a little philosophical here, but you know, it's uh, we need audiences. We need uh, that other side of the coin um, to respond, to comment, to to continue supporting. And um, I mean, me personally, I'm always writing music with my performers in mind, with my audiences in mind, mm -hmm. and everything is there for a reason. And I just, uh, I'm just trying to tell a story. I'm just trying to to. I want everybody's time to be worth it. I want people to feel like their time in the chair, whether they're on stage or in a seat in the audience, is time that was well invested. And that's that's my number one goal. I mean, we're all a community, so I just want us to share it together. Well, that's so beautifully put. I can't think of a better uh, conclusion because even good things like this episode have to come to an end and and expressing it that way. I want to thank you because, because you are so busy, because you are so prolific, because you have something coming up on June 11th. I want to thank you for your generosity and your time and being as articulate as you are about what you do in music uh, on our show. So thank you very much, Jim Stevenson. Oh, Mitch, I appreciate it. And I, I hope, uh, if they don't know this, I'm going to say it out loud. I still remember you sitting at the keys with your hat on, uh, interlocking, <laughs> just jamming away and playing. I had no idea how you were coming up with the notes you did, and I still remember just being in awe of you. So, Well, maybe, speaking maybe, to maybe you, when uh, we'll do a project together at some point. It would be interesting. Uh, jazz piano concerto. Sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> it would be a blast. Um, but Mitch, this has been great. I so appreciate you having me on. Thank it's you. great to reconnect. Absolutely. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.